Hi there, you're listening to the best bits of Breakfasters. For this week, the week ending Friday, the 1st of March, we're on Triple R every weekday morning, broadcast live from 6 to 9 a.m. from Melbourne, Australia. And coming up on the podcast this week, yeah, nah, we talked to Kate Burridge about how that quirk of Australian vernacular made it onto the MCG stage. And beans, pulses and legumes, oh my, Michael Harden came in for Food Interlude and told us why she, we should be eating them. We spoke with author Maxine Beniba-Clark and Tariro Mavondo about adapting the hate race for the stage and Paralympian Andrew Harrison filled us in on the wheelchair rugby National League comp happening this weekend in Caroline Springs. Fee Wright reviews the publishing scene satire Yellow Face by Rebecca F. Kung and we ring in the return of landlines. Melbourne's own. Triple R. Back on Breakfasts to talk idiosyncratic expressions. We're joined by Professor of Linguistics at Monash University, Kate Burridge. Morning, Kate. Good morning. Uh, what's caught your linguistic eye lately? <laughs> Taylor Swift's right. Yana. Well, it wasn't her Yana, but she set up the dancer to respond with a Yana. Mm. Mm. And now, what had you thought about Yana for a while? Oh, I have. I, I've... Um, I started looking at it, oh, back in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Yeah, late 1990s it was. That was when it first sort of started to appear, as far as we know, because we've got conversational data that can, you know, tell you what's going on there. And yeah, yeah now suddenly appeared. And, of course, it was described as speech junk and you know, lumped together with unnecessary words that clutter our language, as someone put it. So not loved, but uh, very different these days. It appears in ads for cars and... Brand names mm. for condoms. It's on necklaces. It's on rings. It's is it really exquisite embroideries? Yeah, yeah. t-shirts, of course. Oh. I mean, the comedian George Carlin. He had, I think, maybe multiple seven, maybe definitions of the the f word. Yes. But, and yeah, nah is not that simple, is it? It's, they they never are. You know these these little words. And I think way back when we did maybe look at some of these discourse markers, as they're sometimes called, like like, and I mean, you know, I think. They kind of tumble out of your inner thoughts when you're interacting with other humans and they have really important duties to do with, well, politeness, solidarity is a big one for Yena, uh, hedging often, you know, you're mm. hedging something, you're mm-hmm. tempering it, uh, it can be emphatic. It sometimes has to do with the organisation of the topic, so it can tell you that tell you the person you're talking to that you're returning to an earlier topic. and So it's really, oh. they're very crucial. They're not meaningless little nothings that you kind of plop in because you've got nothing better to say. Could you use it in a sentence, say, three different ways? What's an example of where the na is the emphasis? Well, well, I suppose when it when it's first started, it would have been tied much more to its literal meanings of yes and no. Uh, so you, if someone offered you something or offered to help you, you know, do you want to lift? Yeah, no, I'm fine. So then the no is a bit blunt. The yeah kind of is, oh, yeah. is a bit of cuddling. It's like saying like thank you, it. but no. Yes, that's mm. right, exactly. But the interesting thing is that coming off the back of that is this very emphatic yes. So you, know, you enjoyed the Taylor Swift concert? Yeah, nah, she was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nah, I had a ball. You know, that, yeah, nah, that's a, that's a very emphatic, very lively yes, and that no kind of knocks on the head any possibility of of contradiction by, you know, raising doubts or whatever. Uh, so that the, and that's tied much more closely to the, yeah, the literal meanings. But the thing about these little markers is that as they progress through time, they get much more anchored in the world of the speaker, much more abstract, much more personal, subjective. Uh, and there's that, there's another year now, 
that is probably the most common, and that's when you might be talking about something that's a bit of a lull in the conversation, and someone says, yeah, no, the concert was fantastic. <laughs> Returning to maybe an earlier topic. Oh, as I was saying. As I was saying, exactly. It's like a pivot. Yes, <laughs> but you're kind of acknowledging the person you're speaking to with that, yeah, so you're bringing them in as well. A bit like the you know does that mm. also. But then there's the one that's very Australian, and that's the uh, kind of tempering a compliment. It's very much a part of Australia's... Uh, well, we have a problem with compliments because you don't want to stand out, you don't want to sky it, but you don't want to reject the compliment, of course, because that would be ungracious. Mm. So, you know, you're looking fabulous. Oh, yeah, no, it's just something I threw together. <laughs> you get it in sports commentary a lot or sports interviews, you know, where someone compliments the player on how they've performed and they say, oh, yeah, no, but, you know, the team was great and conditions were just right. And so you attribute... Your success to, to others, that's it's much, very much a part of it. Yeah, and you're not you're just buying time. So if a footballer does say, yeah, nah, there's something humble about it. Yes, that's right, exactly. Would, would there be a reason that this hasn't caught on outside of Australia? Well, the, the yeah, nah in the Taylor Swift concert is one that um, a colleague of mine, Izzy Burke, and she is a Swifty, so... <laughs> I was writing it with her because she could supply the lyrics. And, the, and she's been tracking a different year now, which appears in American English. Oh. And that's probably the one that was used at the concert. So what was the line that she said? It was, we're never getting back together. And the dancer bellowed, yeah, nah. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of, well, it's been described as a sarcastic shutdown, yeah, nah. Yeah, yeah, yeah sort of pretends that I'm a great, nah. Like an as yeah. yeah, so... <laughs> So very different from Australian year now. She's noticed right. it in um, in younger people's speech here, but only so far that she's noticed anyway in quoting. So, you know, yeah, um, and, and I'm like, yeah, no, we're never going to get that, that sort of... Uh, mm. So you're putting it in a quotation, so it's a kind of a safe way of shutting it down. Mm. So, because Australians, I don't think, have ever used yeah, nah as a, like, psych, like, sucked yeah. you in with a yeah and then no. cop it yeah. with a nah. No. But this dancer was. Well, that's what it seems to be. More, yes. <laughs> oh, but we're latching onto it as though it was the Australianism. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's mm. right. 96,000 people at the MCG just went wild when they heard that. Yeah, no. I mean, she's very good, isn't she? It's sort mm. of, you know, plopping down local references or, you know, bits of phrases that people really mm. respond to. And it's interesting. I mean, it just shows you just how much language is, bonds you, you know. She's very aware of that. Yeah. Would we, do we use it, do you think? The uh, us individuals, yeah, I think so. That you do, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, they no. do. <laughs> but the thing is, so every he's so conscious of it now. When you talk about a particular type of language you use, you think, "Oh, do I use it? When do I use it? Do I use it incorrectly?" Because it was, is it becoming more accepted? Well, it's um, you may not use it as much as I. It's more a baby, but the baby boomers started it. Oh, really? Yes. And that's where we noticed it when Margaret Flory and I first looked at it way back when, uh, it was we didn't really find it in younger people's speech at all. Mm. So it was much the politeness stuff going on with baby boomers. Uh, and these days, I think Izzy mentioned yeah. that it's still um, more usual with, with baby boomers, but that shutdown, yeah, nah, is not. That's the, the younger people's. And mm. what about, like, their ripple effect when, like, language is kind of called out by, like, a pop icon like Taylor Swift. Is it something that we become, like, hyper aware of? Does it taper out? Like, do you it's kind of point. track a difference? Yeah, yeah it, it could It could backfire. It could... Um, yeah. Sorry, I got a squeaky chair. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll stay still. Um, 
It could uh, attract too much attention. Yeah. And that can happen then. It can become, I don't know, like a weedy cliche or something. People, you know, get a bit tired of it. Mm. Uh, mm. These things are, are usually much more um, unconscious. They don't... Yes. You know, they, they slip in the discourse without being noticed. Unless, of course, you overuse them and then they become too much and draw too much attention to them. You know, some people have their favourite little discourse markers and you start... Thinking, oh, they've used you know a lot, and, and that's start, all you hear. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I hate that. Yes, yes. Is it, is it something you see written down? Uh, it's interesting. It's the um, the title of William McGuinness's new book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and other and the other phrases that made us who we are, or something like that. So it's starring in his. He's the main protagonist, I think, in his new book. <laughs> but um, only in uh, if you're trying to recreate dialogue. Yeah. I, I, I remember Margaret. And I noticed it in Sea Change, you know, that ABC mm. drama way back. And I gather with their scripts there was a lot of ad-libbing because it would not have been scripted at that time because people weren't aware of it. So there must have it was evidence, certainly, oh. I think, that there, there was a fair bit of relaxed ad-libbing. We could delve into that, see if it was scripted or ad-libbed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, so was that potentially William McGuinness? Ah, that's a good point. Uh, well, we'll look no, into it. No, it was, uh, yes. Well, it David was, Wenham or Secret uh, Thornton? Or... I think it might have been the main, the, the politician. Uh, uh, yeah. John Howard. John Howard, yeah. 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 That's that politician. There's <laughs> a listener who lives in Yina, yeah. which <laughs> said that it's, I think, probably causing confusion. Pete? Oh, yeah, you know, you know the town, Central oh, yeah. Gippsland. <laughs> You know. <laughs> uh, so what if you're advising, what would you have? Because I think maybe they went to the Australiana well elsewhere. Was there a quote? Oh, from and at the Sydney show, Taylor Swift, one of the, the dancers said, telling is dreaming. Oh, nice. Which I was saying off air before, earlier is it's it's different because it's a quote from a film. It's not the same as just lexicon, you know? So. But they're these sort of public expressions that get trotted out and used. And I wonder that... if it was planned or the first one in Melbourne went so well, they thought, oh, let's let's get them again. Well, he did. Uh, when Izzy went to the concert, it wasn't Yeah, nah, unfortunately, because uh, that's the one she really... But, but <laughs> she she's wanted. actually studied mate as well and, and they did a Yeah, mate. Oh, no. Nice. Okay. <laughs> or now, nah, mate, or I can't remember which <laughs> So if you're advising, what would be something that's on the cusp of becoming... Uh, consciously Australian, but maybe doesn't have that certified stamp of you know Cobber and oh, Blind. What's hovering in the wings? Yeah, come in. That's a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> oh golly, uh, a, a discourse marker. You're yeah. thinking. I can only think of ones that have been trotted out. One that we've looked at is a bit, and that's coming to the attention of uh, people now. I think that's right. Mm. A when, bit. I, when I said last week, I'm you know a bit under the weather, or oh. and then, you know, I was as sick as a dog. Or, and we've got great examples of people using a bit when <laughs> you know, someone, someone you know had a bit of a bit of a something or other, and they actually died. You know, they, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. had a bit of a cold. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> Do we use it in a sense of time as well, the same as like so in the English? Oh, in a bit. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So it, often these ones can keep their their literal sense, and it actually bit comes from bite. Mm. So bit bite became a bit. So you have a, a, a bit of bread as a bite of bread. Originally, it was. Oh. Go back a thousand years, mind you. Gosh. And then you track this little word bite and bit over time. Mm. And uh, yes, I don't like him a bit. It strengthens negators. I thought it might be a potential new negator because English is desperately in need of a, a new negative marker because that little unt is just too small. And we've, they've actually had to bring in you know, forensic phoneticians to determine whether that brothel keeper said he would take a bribe or he wouldn't take a bribe because that is just too swallowed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not ideal for a, 
for a negative mark. And I, I, if I were a betting person, I would have put my money on a bet because that's going down the track of looking like a negator. How my, would it become a negator? Well, if you think of, you probably did some French, uh, yeah. part in French, ne pas. Yeah. That part means, meant step. So ne was the negator and pas was the, was the um, word meaning step. So it strengthened verbs of walking. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't walk a step. I wouldn't drink a drop. I wouldn't, uh, I don't like it a bit. Yes. And the fact that bit is already broken away from bite shows it's on that trajectory to becoming something more abstract. So where would you put it in the sentence? Uh, I didn't like him a bit, so I ah. didn't like it a bit. Didn't like it one bit? Yeah. Okay. Because the nt isn't landing. Yeah, it's, it's, yes, except that it, when, it was actually, again, Izzy who sort of looked at some um, you know, collections of conversations and saw that we actually do strengthen that nt in other ways, uh, so it's usually clear enough whether it's a, a negator or not. But when you think that little n was originally neowished, which meant literally not ever anything, uh, and then that was recruited as a negator, and that becomes so so small, it became not, and then unt, and then in something like don't be silly, it's not even there, it's just that bit of nasality, don't be silly. So it's not phonetic, not emphatic enough, you think? No, it's uh-huh. worth, negation's pretty crucial, particularly yeah. if you're a brothel keeper. How would the brothel keeper use in a bit to really... I, 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 I didn't take a bit of the bright one. So we always strengthen negate in any way, and then sometimes these strengthen negators step in and take over. Mm. Negation is actually a, an area of... Anyway, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm no, no, it's fascinating. <laughs> and uh, so the listeners suggest, to be honest, or if I'm being honest, uh, or I'm not going to lie, and perhaps it's something that's on the cusp of... Uh, and yeah, now nah, is the hyphen joins... There's no line between, there's no space between the yeah. hyphen and the letters. Um, well, you can write them, I've seen it written in all different ways, yeah, but usually with a, with a hyphen. And then, of course, there are other ones like, no, yeah, we haven't even looked at those. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, no, and then, no, yeah, and there's a whole bucket load of other <laughs> Amazing. variations. Uh, can't wait to have you back. Yeah. And you mentioned a thousand years ago, because you've, we'll speak off here about your medieval credentials. <laughs> all right, Dr. Kate Boge, thanks very much. My pleasure, thank you. <laughs> I'm hungry, I want something to eat, something with a crunch and very sweet. Time for our food included with a critic who's famously good for your heart, Michael Harden. Morning, Michael. <laughs> good morning. How are you? Uh, good. And very interested in the conversation today. I haven't thought about beans a, a lot. Yeah, it's sort of they're sort of one of those foods that somebody goes beans and pulses, and your eyes glaze over, and you just want to go and lie down. You know, it's kind of like they're not super glamorous. You know, so but I was kind of like thinking. You know, I started to think about beans and, like, you know, particularly sort of given cost of living pressures and everything on people and sort of like, you know, it's a way of, of uh, you know, saving a bit in the budget. And the more you look into them, the more they're, they're kind of amazing. So, you know, and obviously I am not alone in this because bean sales are currently soaring. They said um, some stats like in the in the US there was they've created, uh, um, they've, they've increased by like 400%. Um, since 2020, so mm. and they're going up in Australia. They're going up worldwide, and they're projected over the next decade to increase even more, like you know, hundreds of percentage points um, in people's diets. And um, it's kind of like it seems like a, the, the right kind of 
time for Bean. Bean's time to shine. Mm. And um, because it's like, you know, we've got cost of living pressures, of course, and beans are a really good, cheap way of feeding people. They're, you know, they're very filling, all of those sort of things. They're very versatile. They're very nutritious. Um, you know, and they're also growing them is actually pretty environmentally friendly compared to a lot oh, of that's crops. Relief. So, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. I know. It's sort of like there's win-win. You know, you're kind of like waiting for the sting, but it's yeah. sort of like beans are these. Because, you know, they're, they're, um, they release less greenhouse gases than most most crops. Um, they also um, they put, they put nitrogen back into the soil, so you need less fertiliser. Um, so they leave the like the bean crops leave the leave the uh, the soil more more um, fertile and ready for the next year. Um, there's they're often they're drought resistant. Um, they're sort of they and they sort of in terms of like they just minimise food waste in terms that they are not like they can be eaten fresh, but they can also be dried and they stay they you know they can be held for you know a long time mm-hmm. um, without using losing any of their nutritional values. So that's kind of like another great thing about them. It's like you know those dried beans. They're you know and they're really really good for you. You know they're um, you know they've got. Uh, you know, they'll help you out with, you know, the heart disease and with, um, you know, kind of gut flora and all of those sort of things, um, lowering cholesterol, you know, that, that sort of stuff. So there's sort of like there's no downside to them really. High in iron. Yeah, well. high in iron. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. It's sort of like, you know, they're good for, you know, you just, they, and like, you know, that that's why whenever you read one of those food pyramids or whatever and they're telling you what you should be eating mm. and it's sort of like there's always the beans and pulse section. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But uh, how, how broad is your definition of beans? I mean, what, what is the definition of a bean? Yeah, so we've got, so you, they're part of the legume family. So they, they talk about legumes and pulses and beans, but they're all actually legu- legume, legumes are actually the plants. So that includes the leaves and the seeds and the pods. So, so say looking at it, say a bean, uh, a pea, for example, you've got the, the the pod itself that contains the peas is a legume, and then the peas are sort of like considered pulses. Mm-hmm. So ah. pulses are the beans. So they're like the edible seeds. So it's sort of like they so they talk about legume, but legume sort of like an overriding term. And the pulses and and the beans are actually the pulses are beans and peas and things like that. Like something like you know a peanut. Is a is a pulse, so um, they're sort of they're part of that family as well. There's there's like two twenty thousand. They're one of the biggest species of flowering plants in the world. So there's twenty thousand species of beans in the wow. In, and so uh, you know, and they're all across the across the world as well. Like you know, you sort of you immediately sort of think you know um, the Caribbean, Mexico, um, you know Europe, Southern Europe in particular, the Middle East. You know, all places that. Um, you know, could grow beans and have used them. They were one of the first farmed crops. Like they've been, you know, for, for um, thousands of years, they've been mm. farmed. So you know, they've been around. They're quite. They're, they're pretty amazing. So, mm. and the good thing about them is, like, you know, there's, you know, there's. You look at it. There's the canned versus dry beans sort of thing. And even within the, like, even with canned beans, they're still really good for you. They're, um, you know, the, the problem with the only thing that you have to watch with canned beans um, is that they will be reasonably high in sodium because in order to preserve them in the can, they have to, they have to put... But if you wash them before you use them, 
that reduces the um, amount of sodium in them by about 40%. Mm. So um, they're still like, you know, that's the great thing about it. It's sort of like in how that was sort of like my gateway drug into how like cooking with beans um, was canned beans because, you know, they are so convenient. And you can make like brilliant things like, you know, it's like a really quick curry, for example, mm. an Indian curry with chickpeas and spinach and onions. And then, you know, you put cumin and turmeric and chili powder in there. And it's sort of like you can, you can have this like really delicious, very nutritious, um, you know, bean like chickpea curry in like less than half an hour. Mm. So you mm. know, but there is a good thing to be said for the dried ones as well. So mm. dried ones are generally cheaper. Like if you like, you know, canned beans aren't, aren't hugely expensive, and that's why the, the sales have gone up it's because more and more people are using them to substitute for meat and other more expensive ones. But the uh, the dried ones are actually better value for money, sort of because you can do, you know, you can have you get more for less, sort mm. of thing. But they do need attention. So I think that's that's sort of the stumbling block with beans with a lot of people. It's sort of like you kind of look at a packet of dried beans and they're these hard kind of things and you're thinking how on earth am I going to and you know you need to think about soaking and cooking and all of that sort of stuff do you have to soak I wasn't sure if that was a, one of those things that you actually don't you have don't to do. have to yeah um soaking can sometimes be better um mm. one of the things about soaking um you know if, if you're worrying about beans making you fart too much then soaking will really oh, soak get all the farts out yeah you soak, <laughs> soak the farts away is the bean bean cancels is that why people uh, do it slogan <laughs> uh, so uh, now they're coming up against the the mushiness and people if they're prepared badly it's like baby food yeah, yeah, that's the thing. It's sort of like the texture, which I think a lot of people are a little bit concerned about with, um, you know, the texture of canned beans in particular. Um, but I think, you know, things like cannellini beans and chickpeas are pretty good in cans. Like, they, they maintain their texture pretty well. Things like, um, I would say, put the red kidney bean down mm. and do it yourself. Because they're just, I think there's something about canning, the canning process ah. with kidney beans that I just think it's kind of like... The dried one is just streets and streets and streets ahead. Okay. So, you know, so you want to, want to be doing a bit of that. The good thing about it, though, like, you know, there, there is a bit of a process to it. Like, you do need to kind of – it's best to soak them overnight. Like, you like dried beans, empty them out into a sieve, go through it because they're often – there'll be little stones and rocks and bits mm. and stuff from the harvesting process. So you need to do that first. Then you can soak them overnight. And then you can sort of cook them. You can either cook them up to sort of just be plain beans, but you can also you can soak them, and then you can um, you can also freeze them. Like cooked beans also um, can be frozen really easily, and they you know and you can maintain them there. So if you're going to be doing this process, think ahead. Think about you know sort of having a bunch of different you know frozen beans in your, mm. so that you can sort of like just whack it into a soup or whatever. Mm. The other thing that I love about dried beans is that because you're cooking them you are in control of the texture and the flavour. So it depends on what you're cooking with them because they're, you know, they need to be rehydrated. Mm. And so if you're cooking them in, like, you know, say, chicken stock or vegetable stock or with tomatoes and onions and garlic and peppercorns and chilli and all of those sort of things, that's all getting soaked up into the flesh of the bean. So it's sort of like just adding this depth of flavour that you don't get otherwise. So it's like, you know, I, I just love the, the idea that you can... You're more in control, like in control freak. You're more in control of the flavour of the bean and the texture. 
as mm. well. So I find as well because I eat a lot of beans, yeah. not eating meat. But the the black beans can be a little bit tricky. Yes, like you've really got to make sure. I think I made this recipe and I soaked it, but then I didn't rinse them properly. Yes, and it just looked horrible. Yeah. Oh, like yeah, you that like, can be one of the things. This kind of black said. juice came out You're of never everything. Gonna, yeah, like visually, they're not going to win any competitions. Mm. You know, it's kind of like I think this is the, one of the things against them. They're sort of like not that immediate thing, mm. but it's sort of interesting. I know that I was reading an article in about um, trends in in the UK and because of in Europe in particular things like avocado are a bit problematic environmentally you know okay. they're sort of like because they're importing them from places that they're you know like South America where they're cutting down native forest in order to grow avocados to meet mm. the demands in Europe you know it's not so bad in Australia because we grow them here ourselves but smashed pulses are starting to be become a thing on breakfast menus mm. and stuff. So, you know, sort of like, you know, with so beautiful beans that are mushed up with, you know, kind of like sprinkled with feta and some fresh tomato on the top, sort of instead of your smashed avocado. It's Cannellini of, beans cannellini on beans toast so with rosemary good. and salt and oil. Yeah, so good, you know, and it's <laughs> sort of like and all those, you know, beautiful sort of Greek Mm. recipes with the, you know, the gigantes with the great big, oh, you know, yeah, the white big beans and stuff, you know, and then sort of like, and you just sort of, all those textures of fresh tomatoes and onions and feta Yum. and lemon juice and, you know, all of those sort of things in there. They're so good and so hearty. And then the other great thing about it, at the end of eating them, you feel really virtuous. <laughs> you can go, yes, I've helped the planet, I've helped my body, I've helped everything. That's right. And the, the storage for the, can are they impervious, a, a bean, or can, can you store them back? Badly. Could they overheat and sweat? Or not re- like when, once they're dry, they're pretty. They're pretty hardy little things. Like you know, you probably. But you know, like anything, you probably want to use it sooner rather than later. You know, it's like you don't want to have it like you know. The, the bag of beans with cobwebs and weevils in it. <laughs> <laughs> so, also on the text line, apparently, I was was curious about this. Apparently, it's uh, good. Good, you can grow. Easy to grow. I yes. Know, I didn't, yeah. I never exactly. That. Well, I'm I'm a gardener, so I think I'll I'll let the I'll let the, I'll leave that to the, the experts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy that juice. But you know, there's sort of the other thing is that there's a great variety of them as well, and it's really easy to find out. You know, what each bean is good for. You know, speaking of black eyed black eyed beans, black beans, it's sort of like you know that's really good in like a lot of different different cooking, including like some, you know, famous Jamaican, mm-hmm. the peas and rice Jamaican dish, which is, you know, super delicious and good on its own or good with, you know, if you're eating meat and stuff. So it's sort of like, there's just so many good, you know, you, you think about, and even things like, um, you know, tofu is mm. from beans, peanut butter is from beans. You know, you've got all these kind of different things that, that are coming from, you know, and look in the glory of hummus, mm. you know, things like that. They're sort of like, you know, you look at it, it's like they're super versatile, um, you're probably eating more of them in various forms than you, you believe. So it's sort of like it's good. I feel we need to sort of like shift our consciousness about beans and bring them more into the spotlight because there's there's so much good stuff about them. And, you know, the cheapness of them at this time mm. is something that, you know, we, we can all use. We need to pay them more respect. Exactly. Respect say. the yeah. bean. Gave it's sort of like, you know, yeah. The glory of hummus. I know, the glory of hummus. <laughs> sort of, that's, that's where they should be starting. Yeah. Michael Harden, independent, not paid off by the Bean Council <laughs> at all. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks. Triple R.
Maxine Benevi-Clark is a writer, poet and author of titles including Carrying the World, which won the Victorian Premier's Prize for Poetry, Foreign Soil, which took home Literary Fiction Book of the Year at the Australian Book Industry Awards, her picture book collaboration, The Patchwork Pipe, which won the Crichton Award for Children's Book Illustration, and a memoir, The Hate Race, which won the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award. Now, The Hate Race, which details her experiences growing up in Sydney in the 70s and 80s, has been adapted to the stage, co-directed by Tariro Mavondo, and to tell us about it, both Maxine and Tariro join us now. Welcome, both of you, to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Truro, uh, to spare Maxine from any painful self-aggrandisement, can you tell us about the source text and what makes it so fertile for theatrical adaptation? Yeah. I mean, I fangirl Maxine. Um, I remember reading The Hate Race 10 years ago, and for me, um, as a black woman who also grew up in Australia, the source material actually... It took me a while to read it because it was so close and so familiar to me. And I think a lot of um, women that I speak to um, who carry bodies like ours really relate to, uh, to yeah, uh, Maxine's experiences. And I think um, in this particularly, I would say, um, a time where race there's a lot of tension um, in terms of race politics. I think it is a beautiful work um, because I think Maxine has created an invitation. It's a conversation to talk about race and it's not about shaming, it's not about guilting. Uh, it's actually just about, um, yeah, an invitation to go, who are you in these series of characters that we see on stage? Mm. Um and they're so nuanced as well. And it's sort of like these microaggressions that sometimes it's sort of like you go, oh, is that racism, isn't it? Um, but but as, you, as you kind of go through the play, it's a collection of these sort of really micro, um, micro moments that really shape, uh, shape uh, someone's context and someone's, um, yeah, experience. And so, yeah, I feel like it's a beautiful invitation to talk about race. Mm. And Maxine, what about your relationship now to see it evolve and change? How do you approach that seminal work? Yeah, I think the beautiful thing about the experience has been having other hands in the pot, you know. <laughs> People like Tariro and like Courtney, the co-director, and Zara, the actor, and Kuda, the musician, who all have their own experiences, you know, with race in Australia from various backgrounds and, and histories. And they bring that to the stage. And so I think this offering up of the text to say, look, you know, you can put your interpretation on this now has been really great. Mm. Um, writing a memoir is such a solitary process. Mm. You know, it's just you and a bottle of wine in the middle <laughs> of the night, you know. <laughs> kind of existential reckoning. And so this feels a lot more playful and, you know, I've just had the opportunity to watch a lot of other amazing artists do their thing, you know, with the stage design and the costume mm. design and the set and it all feels like magic being mm. someone that normally works on the page. Can we talk a little bit about Zara Newman? She did the audiobook for the for the Hate Race originally, and I feel like watching her on stage, I couldn't imagine anybody else doing it. Was did you have her in mind when this was being developed? Or yeah, Zara has been part of the development from the beginning. Mm. Um, and in fact, I met her when my publishers put out a call out for um, uh, actors of colour to read the 
audiobook. Mm. And I thought, I'm not going to research anyone. I'm just going to listen to the first, they had to read the first chapter. Mm. And when I heard her, I thought, this is exactly the way I would read the book, mm. you know. And I had this thing about I don't want to read it myself because then people will be like in their car listening to me read my memoir. <laughs> seemed really weird. Um, and, of course, you know, the interesting thing about that is, you know, Zara came to Australia when she was 14. She's of Jamaican background, so she grew up in Jamaica. So the accent she had in that reading was a performed Australian accent, you know, which I find fascinating mm. given that was the reading that I kind of thought, yeah, this this is the one. And, of course, once I they kind of unblinded them and, and I saw the names, I thought, oh, who is this person and started researching her. And then she exploded at that time. She mm. was suddenly everywhere in everything. And, um, yeah, she's just she's – a, she's a master at one-person mm. productions. Mm. Um, so I think that plus – coming from a similar background, you know, being able to do my grandmother's voice, mm. you know, in her natural voice. It's a lot of pressure. Um, yeah, yeah, mm. those kinds of things. And and there was a, a community elder actually on the first night and um, she came and she said, oh, that that actress, she she did the accent so perfectly. And I said, mm. no, that's her accent. <laughs> she wasn't performing. She was performing the English and the Australian accent. The audience know. was getting quite up and about yeah. on the first night. I think there were some yeah. Yeah, people who were, the certain parts of the text were really resonating with when she was talking about the food and yeah. all that. They were sort yeah. of seeing out. And so it was nice to see yeah. a lot of activity. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's such a, a beautiful um like performance, such a fusion of like poetry Mm. and music and then obviously dealing with like, you know, race and discrimination and then also moments of just like there's such comic relief and Mm. nostalgia. Like how did you kind of approach balancing, I guess, that? Yeah, that was really important for us to find the balance Um, and also the absurdity Mm. of racism. There's um there's a, there's the white girl poem and then underneath the white girl <laughs> poem is um accidentally Kelly's <laughs> yeah. and we wanted to really mash that up and mm. go yeah there's something really um, absurd about racism anyway so let's really tease that <laughs> yeah. and, and and find the humour so there's lots of moments there's lots of laugh out loud moments um yeah so so it's accessible um for all people to sort of enter into um yeah into the story. Maxine, has being exposed to this process changed or had an impact or effect on your own writing process or seeing how things land? Yeah, I think I tend to play a bit less than we played around with this. You know, with a book, it's kind of like you've got your deadline, you're trying to get things done, it feels more like kind of um, work. Yeah, it's it's building the house, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas this felt like interior decorating. Well, at least, you know, being allowed to have access to the rehearsal room, you know, yeah. the writing the script feel, still felt like building the house. Um, but, yeah, I think what it's changed for me writing-wise is, well, partly also seeing how few words, how, how, how much you can do with very few words, which I knew as a poet anyway, mm. um, but kind of watching Tariro direct and Courtney direct and because this is the first time it's ever been performed, you know, sometimes we kind of say we can take out this entire scene or we can take out this entire line of dialogue. You know, mm. the script we have on stage now is not the same as the script we had four weeks ago mm-hmm. um, just because, you know, once you have a director in the, in the room and they kind of say, look, we can do that 
by through sound or through direction. It doesn't need to be in words. So I think kind of just realising how much can be done through other means. Yeah, it was incredible to watch. It's like just from a shift of like stance or levels in the set mm. that you saw Zara become a whole new character. It was mm. yeah, incredible to watch. You seem weirdly easy to work with. Yeah. <laughs> What's the catch? Is, it, yeah. is there a danger that the, the author of the source material is that monstrously owned, you know, owns the process or is precious? I reckon it could be. Mm. It depends on the personality. It's been actually a real treat. It's been a real privilege having, um, yeah, the writer in the room um, for a director and for um, create for the creatives as well. It's like it's it's rare um, to have the yeah to have the writer be there and watch the process. And um, Maxine, yeah, you felt so like open, um, <laughs> like, just like kind of yeah, very curious about the process. So it's never felt super yeah like super imposing or anything it's just been very yeah I think trust as well you Mm. know I mean we had kind of had a meeting right at the beginning of the process where we you know talked with Tarira and Courtney and I about what we imagined this work would be you know and um had a very similar vision for it's a work with so much trauma in it but it's also a work of black joy. And mm. I think knowing that everyone was on the same page, is, mm. it's funny. And, you know, childhood is this time of, you know, happiness, even if it's an unhappy child <laughs> yeah. you know, sometimes. Um, so, yeah, and I think... And also, you know, there were some times when we did have, you know, kind of... I wasn't in the rehearsal room the whole time, so I was maybe in there, like, 15% of the time, maybe 20% of the time. Mm. Um you know, where they would kind of phone me and say, look, we're thinking of doing this. You know, what do you think? Or do you want to come in for a couple of hours and watch what we've done? Mm. So there was kind of a lot of back and forth. Um, I knew that if they were going to make a really drastic change, Mm -hmm. they would call me and show (laughs) it to me. Yeah, there were moments where we were like, ooh, Uh, no. This text is on school syllabus now, isn't it? Yeah. So will students come to watch? Did you have any of that in mind in development or it's not about them? <laughs> yeah, there, there are a couple school matinees, um, but the text, so the text was on as a full uh, memoir for the last few years and now there's a, they've moved to short extracts. So there's mm. a chapter on the syllabus. Um, so I think that makes people less inclined to come and see it. But I think there are a lot of schools that just study the book, mm. you know, because they in year 10, you know, when they can actually choose what to do. Mm. And so, yeah, I hope young people have also got a, a community engagement program, mm. um, which is headed by a wonderful woman named Amarantha Robinson, who's also Jamaican background. And so we've got a lot of young people coming in and doing workshops and then going into the production after the workshops, mm. which is something we really wanted was kind of to open it up to the next generation and say, look, here are some tools for you to learn to tell your mm. own stories as well. As a writer, how does that feel to get behind, to deconstruct your own work or to be privy to that? Is there something like, and as a theatre maker, it's like, well, we've, we've, we've done our best to display it here. Talking about it undermines all the decisions that inform the presentation. I mean... Do, can you speak to that at all, is, or is it just brilliant to get the message out there, no matter no matter how? 
I think it's important to do it in different forms. I think what um, Amarantha has curated is such a um, holistic sort of like a program. So there's a, a, so there's a peace pod upstairs, um, which was run by uh, Polar pra- Practice, which is a um, all BIPOC um, uh, therapists, and uh, yeah, and it's uh, it's it's there for anyone who uh, felt particularly very kind of like overwhelmed with emotion after or before seeing the work and then spoken word is such a immediate like um an urgent like um uh art form uh to get your message across and so there's going to be some of the best um uh yeah uh poets who are performing and there's an open mic segment for um for poets who want to perform on the on the day in the next um yeah the next uh, two weekends yeah uh, yeah i think so that that opportunity and then there's learning yeah there's workshop opportunities for young people who want to uh, delve more into poetry and writing so i think I think actually what um, Maxine has opened up has, is sort of like these gateways of um, just accessing it in different ways uh, for different people. Um, so I think just dis- deconstruction can be a really, I think, awesome thing, um, yeah, in this instance. Well, it's all happening, isn't it? Tariro Mavondo is the co-director with Courtney Stewart of The Hate Race. And Maxine Benema clark is the author and writer. It's very exciting. It's on till the 17th of March. Yes, yeah. at Beckett Theatre at the Malt House. And can I ask about your wine tipple? <laughs> What's your drink of choice? Drink of choice. I'm not a big drinker. Uh, yeah. I keep joking about, you know, seven o'clock sitting down and opening a bottle of wine. You know, that thing of knowing that somewhere in a room is people watching this story yeah. at seven o'clock every night. Amazing. <laughs> to get through that. But yeah, yeah, I'm not a big drinker. Okay. Well, yeah, tackle the existential drink with something yeah, else yeah. then. Uh, Truro Mavondo and Maxine Beneba-Clark are behind the hate race until 17th of March at Beckett Theatre at the Malt House. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Andrew Harrison is a two-time gold medal winning Paralympian who first represented Australia in wheelchair rugby at the 2007 Chris Handy Cup in Invercargill, New Zealand, competed in the London 2012, Rio 2016 and 2020 Tokyo Games. Along the way, becoming the first team in wheelchair rugby history to win consecutive Paralympic gold medals and a world title in a four-year period. Andrew is presently coach of the Box Hill team and organiser of the Wheelchair Rugby National League Melbourne Invitational, which takes place this weekend and Tell us about it. The Medal of the Order of Australia recipient joins us now. Andrew, welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, cheers. Thanks for having us. It's our deep and abiding pleasure. Now, you you have an interesting story about getting into the sport. Who introduced you? Yeah, so I had a diving accident uh, in 2004, uh, which left me a quadriplegic. And when I was in rehab, um, I was sort of coaxed by one of the guys who was on the team at the time. And he said, hey, come here, check out wheelchair rugby. And I was sort of like, Wheelchair rugby seems a bit odd, mm-hmm. but hey, I'll, I'll give it a go. So I went out there, and as soon as I seen it, I was like, where do I sign up? How yeah. do I play? Let's let's get involved in this. And it's sort of just been wheelchair rugby ever since. What is wheelchair rugby? How do, Couldn't you describe it? Best way to describe it is demolition derby. <laughs> um, that is the, the simple way to put it. Um, but it is basically a mix of a few sports put together um, to give the ability for people like myself who have quadriplegia or a disability very similar to it, 
the ability to get into sport because we probably don't have the function to be able to play basketball and um, sort of compete with those guys, whereas a sport was introduced for people with less function, and that's where wheelchair rugby was born, and um, it's gone from there, and it's going from strength to strength. Mm. So you said it's like a mixture of sports. Can you kind of take us through that a little bit? So it's played on a basketball court, is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's correct. So it's played on a, a normal basketball court, yep. um, and we have cones at each end, which we have to score between, which is like scoring a try in your normal rugby. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's different rules, so a little bit of basketball comes into that. So we've got over and back, so you, you know, with your halfway line. Yep. Um, we've got a shot clock, so you've got to score from one end to the other in 40 seconds, and you've got to get from one end to halfway in 12 seconds. So, you know, it's a really wow. quick, fast-paced game, um, and especially when you're moving around in a big battering ram, <laughs> um, it definitely is a very, very, you know, spectacular sport. How are the injuries you get while playing? I'm touch wood. Um, have been quite sort of lucky over my almost two decades playing. Um, really sort of only done probably four fingers and a nose. Mm. So, you know, I count, my, count myself pretty lucky. In what about your opponents? Um, <laughs> I mean, for a, for a sport that is as full contact as it is, like wheelchair rugby's probably pretty safe. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, yeah. you, you you have those injuries where you might, you know, pull a muscle or something mm-hmm. along those lines, but serious injuries is pretty few and far between. Yeah. Do you have specific chairs for it? Yes, yeah. we do, yeah. So we've got a custom-made chair. Um, looks a little like something out of Mad Max. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's got the, the huge bits of metal around the front of it. Um, the wheels are cambered for speed and cornering. Um, and, you know, they're built to... They're built to crash into other chairs. <laughs> What's the Paris national team selection like? Oh, that's uh, yeah, that's that's a big window there. There's a lot of good players, you know, really pushing for, you know, only a few spots. Mm. Um, and you know, the greatest thing about wheelchair rugby, especially here in Australia, is that we have so many numbers now getting involved that uh, the the national team are looking unbelievable. Um, and you know they're really going to give it to all the other teams when it comes to Paris. But it was it wasn't necessarily easy for you. You got some setbacks, didn't you? It wasn't clear sailing into the national team. Yeah, no, and I mean, it's it's when you after an accident, you sort of you're a bit unclear on where your life's going to go. So when I was introduced to wheelchair rugby, I was sort of determined that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, but then, I mean, like every, everyone in life, you have setbacks and there's always things that get in your way. Um, and I was just fortunate enough that I was able to navigate my way around that and have a great career um, with the with the national team. Mm. And now you're a coach. Do you, do you still play? I play a little bit. So I play in our local league competition that we have here in Melbourne. Um, and, you know, I really enjoy that. Um, when it comes to the international and the sort of nationals here in Australia, probably not so much. Um, I probably haven't done a lot of fitness since I retired from, from the Australian team. So I enjoy the coaching because it's a different aspect. Um, I'm still able to be involved in the game, um, but from a different point. Um, and I really enjoy that side of it. It's a bit of a challenge too, um, you know, because normally I want to be out there playing. Um, and to be able to help the players that are on the court in a different way, um, mm. I really enjoy. What sort of a coach are you? Oh, some would say I'm quite fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, being 
an athlete, I know what the athlete wants from a coach, so I'm able to bring that to bring that to the table. Um, I'm still learning as a coach, and I mean it's probably one of those things. As a coach, you're always learning. Um, you've got different players, different the ways they take information in, um, and that's probably one of the biggest things that I'm sort of struggling with at the moment. But again, I'm happy and up for the challenge, and um, just looking forward to getting out there on Friday and um, yeah, giving it a real good crack. Yeah, what is what is this invitational going to look like? Yeah, so we've got uh, five teams from um, all over Australia. Um, we've got uh, one from Sydney, two from Brisbane, and then we've got the two teams here in Melbourne. Um, and it's a mix of Australian players. Uh, it's a mix of state-based players that you know want to play some good rugby. Um, and it's all out war until Sunday, and then we'll come out with a uh, with a winner and. We'll move on to the next round, which I think is in, uh, in Sydney sometime around the end of March. Mm-hmm. And is it correct? It's mixed, isn't it? That's correct. Rugby, yeah. yes. And it's played mixed at an international and national level. One yes. of the only sports? Yeah, that's it's, correct. Yeah. We're the only sport that's a mixed sport where mm. females and males can play the sport together. Um, and, you know, some of the females around the world are, I mean, they're fantastic. And mm. they take on the boys like they they're not scared at all. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it's it's awesome to see. What about what's the ball? Yeah, so a lot of people sort of say, "How how do you go playing wheelchair rugby with you know, a, you know, a rugby ball?" And it's like, well, we have a modified ball that um, it's very similar to a volleyball, mm-hmm. um, probably a little bit lighter than a volleyball, but um, same sort of concept. Um, and for us, there's no passing backwards in rugby, so. In wheelchair rugby anyway. So we have to actually bounce the ball every 10 seconds. Mm. Um, so you can imagine bouncing a ball every 10 seconds, putting it on your lap, pushing, dodging someone else in a chair and trying to score a goal. It can be... It's quite, frenetic. Yeah. It is. It is. And that's why I love it. Yeah. And are there often rule changes? Uh, not really. Um, you know, it's pretty pretty flat across the board in regards to the rules. Um, I mean, the biggest thing is get out there and... Have fun smashing into people. Yeah. And is it noisy on the court? I mean, for me, I'm used to it. But um, sometimes when people first come down and see it, they're kind of like, wow, like that's... If you're not ready for it, it can actually give you a bit of a fright. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, once, you, once you've been around it for a while, it kind of almost becomes white noise. Yeah. <laughs> so if we head down to Caroline Springs Leisure Centre uh, and it's on from Friday to Sunday, are the games just butting up against each other all weekend? Yeah, <laughs> they're literally one after the other. Um, there's two courts going. Um, sometimes there'll be two games on both courts. Um, and then, But most of the time on the main court, there's a game probably, there's about half an hour difference in between them. So it's a full-on schedule. Um, and for those that want to come out and check it out, yeah, you'll be in for in for a good bit of entertainment. Yeah, bet. And uh, what's next for you? For me, uh, I just want to continue doing my coaching and really trying to see where that can take me. Um, hey, I'd love one day to maybe even take on the the you know Australian coaching role. Um, I mean, that's a very long term goal. Um, but at the moment, I'm quite happy just. Uh, Kicking, kicking along here in Victoria and helping helping new players come through. 
um, and go from there. Nice. Well, Andrew Harrison is behind the, what are we calling it, the Wheelchair Rugby National League Melbourne Invitational, which takes place Friday the 1st to Sunday the 3rd of March. It's at Caroline Springs Leisure Centre on the, the parade in Caroline Springs. And for more info, uh, shall we head to the Disability Sport and Recreation website? Yeah, that's the best place to go and get all the information and uh, also on our socials. Nice. dsr.org.au is where to go for that website. Andrew Harrison, great pleasure to have you in. Cheers. Thanks for having us. Triple R. by the OG, Fee Wright. Morning, Fee. Good morning. Um, I'm here to talk about um, a novel that has been, I don't want to use the word controversial, but it has had a lot of, a lot of chatter, a lot of, a lot of chatter, um, particularly because of the author um, encourages and supports lots of chatter. So RF Kuang, um, she's known for writing fantasy-based novels, and this book, Yellowface, that I'm here to talk about today, is her first foray into more realistic fiction. Um, I've previously read Babel and loved that, um, and so I was really excited to read Yellowface. And essentially, this is a novel, it's it's a very biting novel about the publishing industry and also social media. Um, and I have to say as well, it's an incredibly um, easy read. So RF Kuang, it came out last year, but RF Kuang is coming to speak at the Wheeler Centre in a couple of weeks. Um, so I thought it was kind of good timing, good opportunity. Um, it's been a big deal. I think it's got moved from the Wheeler Centre to like Jeff Shedd. So it's got quite Goodness. a quite an audience. Um, so it seemed like a good time to, to talk about the book. Um, the plot essentially is that we are in the head and mind of June Haywood. She is a nobody. She went to Yale um, and has had one book published to middling to low attention, kind of lost in the sea, as it were. Um, She's trying to get herself published, make herself a bigger name for herself, whatever, but she's really struggling to succeed. Um, She went to uni with Athena Liu. Um, she's an incredibly successful young author. She published three books straight out of uni and is at the start of the novel celebrating her Netflix book option deal. So Athena and June, obviously they went to uni, they kept in touch. We hear that entire relationship from June's perspective and she is quite dismissive of, um, Athena and their friendship, she's like, you know, we see each other a couple of times a month. We hang out, usually because Athena wants to, like, mm, whatever, kind of dismissive. June is white and Athena is Asian. And this is important for where we're going with the book. You can probably tell by the title, Yellow Face. So Athena dies in a freak accident. You know this in the first sentence. This okay. is not a spoiler. She dies in a freak accident while June is the only one present. And June decides to steal Athena's unpublished forthcoming manuscript. She line edits the book, which is all about World War I Chinese labourers, and gets it published under the ethnically ambiguous name Juniper Song, and it's a massive runaway hit. This is a very uncomfortable book. Um, Athena, whose only crime is to be talented and successful, is portrayed as a bit up herself and wanky. So June is only able to steal the manuscript because Athena insists on typing it up on a typewriter and doesn't share any ideas about drafts until it's finished. 
Um, so she's done nothing wrong here except be successful and not work in a traditional manner. So obviously, you know, she had it coming, according, <laughs> according to June. And it just... June just makes my teeth itch because you are just so <laughs> uncomfortable with her and her inner life and the way she justifies her choices. You know, she focuses on the labor that she puts into the book, the editing, the construction of the narratives, world building support. And these are all things that June claims to have done, but it's unclear how accurate that is. Cause she does, I mean, how reliable can this person actually be? You know, she's kind of, it's, it's pretty accepted at this point that someone who's doing this kind of thievery and duplicitousness is unreliable. Um, it's also very 2020s because there is so much Twitter discussion in the book and so much social media discussion, um, particularly around things of own voices narratives and the justification of diversity and the commodification of diversity is just this really interesting discussion that Kwong's exploring. And she also lampoons it quite a lot because some of it absolutely reads like Twitter threads that I've seen over white authors and the relationship with creating characters that are people of color. She spends a lot of time discussing different elements of the publishing industry who gets to be published, how they get to be published, who gets the fame and the glory. Um, And all of these comments are are scattered throughout the novel and give this strong sense that we're like peeking behind the curtain of publishing. Um, And it's this very secretive thing, but it's also just, it's just so dark at Mm. points. So for example, there's a scene where June feels really vindicated in her theft, she attends a speaking event at a Chinese American social club. It's supremely awkward because the people inviting her are shocked that she's clearly not Asian. And then she is thanked by a member of the public whose father was involved in the labor dispute that was in June slash Athena's book. So she's telling stories that need to be told, but they are not her stories to be told. And so uh, Kwong is presenting this scenario and letting the reader interpret it how they wish. Making you uncomfortable. Making you deeply uncomfortable because there's this car ride. Oh, my God, this car ride. So uh, June's gotten on the train and has arrived at this at this train station where she's being picked up by the head of this um, committee. And the head of the committee is, like, clearly pissed that she is not who she thought she was going to be inviting. And she's like, I have this whole room full of people that were expecting this one person and you are not what we were expecting. Mm. And it was, the car ride is so uncomfortable. (laughs) It is just, yeah, it's excellent, awkward, awkward discomfort riding. I mean, I'm just scanning through. It's every line. It's cringing juice. Oh, yes. No. Yeah. I think I had my shoulders up to my ears. Yeah. Just listening to the description. Um, so she's just, she's right. She's written this incredible page turner. <laughs> You're feeling pure revulsion because obviously June is going to start behaving in more and more outlandish ways in order to prevent her secret from being revealed. Um, and social media becomes incredibly important in the book because the publishers begin to pressure June for a follow-up so she doesn't lose momentum and all the social capital. Um, Yeah, it just, it is, like, it's funny because I am someone that cannot watch, I don't know, Curb Your Enthusiasm or Peep Show without having Tetris to play without distracting. Like, I need something else in my hands. Need a buffer. Otherwise, I just, I just, 
vibrate with discomfort. <laughs> but this book, I don't know, I couldn't put it down. Um, mm. And that's not what I, like, people talk about, I don't know, the the dissolution of highbrow, lowbrow, whatever brow. Um, I think it's really interesting for us to be thinking about who does get to be published. Mm. Um, and there's been, I've, I've read some comments online about um, the Athena character is based on Kwong. And I haven't actually read if RF Kwong has actually said that, if Athena is based on her. But are you only saying that because she's Asian and successful? Like there's mm-hmm. just a bunch of things, you know, I don't know about Kwong's practice, but, you know, I don't know if she uses a typewriter or whatever. But, you know, there's just a lot of things, a lot of commentary. Um, I, I Actually, this book first came to my attention when I read an Instagram review of it where someone said that it made them uncomfortable to be white, <laughs> which... Um, it didn't make me uncomfortable to be white. I feel like if it's making you uncomfortable, maybe maybe that's saying more about you than it's that it's saying about the book. Mm. The discomfort I had was with the social awkwardness and the fact that it's obviously holding up a pretty uh, unpleasant uh, Black Mirror style image. It's been described in one review as a thriller. Would you call it that? Yes, because you don't know how it's going to end. Mm. How is she going to get out of this mess? Because mm. she's in a real pickle. A pickle of her own making, sure. Mm. And it's also like the way she just glibly floats past watching her friend die is just, it is, it is so odd and strange. And I think about it like once a week, I read it over the summer and put, I, as soon as I read it, I put my name down in our little like book review spreadsheet. I was like, I am doing this next. Um, But it's been a solid, I don't know, five weeks since I've read it. And just sitting out in the green room before getting on air, I start, I started reading it again. Like mm. I picked it up and I was just sitting there and started again. And I remember I'm back on page four, wow. you know, like it just, it has this incredible rereadability too. And because it is so uncomfortable, is that what's propelling you towards her end? Is yeah. Finding out how she's That resolution. Get... Yeah, the resolution. Yes. Mm. It looks like that event is maybe sold out oh, already. Looks... Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, well. That's what it was. So, yeah, Rebecca Quang yeah. in the book Yellowface. How does Yellowface yeah. reflect on the publishing industry? Not kindly. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of comments akin to, um, you know, there is only there only gets to be one person of colour per publishing house and there are a lot of those sorts of glib comments scattered throughout the text. So, um, And there are also comments that I have been reading for years and years about um, diversity and access within the industry. 75% of books published, I think, last year in America were by white authors. Um, so, you know, this is definitely something that is a considerable issue. People talk about it in social circles, but, um, and I, I think people are speaking about it in a non-academic, uh, sorry, in a, like in a more broader academic cultural study sense, but not in a, I'm going to actually publish a book discussing this as a, as a narrative fiction and explore this concept, which... So it's, it's brand new in that sense, I think. All right. Uh, tell us again what we've been discussing We've here. been discussing um, RF Kwong's uh, Yellow Face, and I can't remember the publisher, and you're holding the book. Uh, yes, I am indeed. Uh, you, would, <laughs> you would think. Uh, is it Borough Press? That sounds about right. Mm. Borough Press, indeed. I just see the big Reese's Book Club sticker super glued on the front that I can't get off. Yes. Well, uh, the irreplicable fee, right? Just, and that's coming later on, the, the, the visiting. 
the yes. Rebecca F. Uh, Kwan. Yes, yes, in a couple of weeks, in March, I think. So I think yeah. it's being live-streamed, maybe, as yeah, well. Yeah, well, I just looked at the Willow Centre website, and it does look like tickets are gone. So maybe we'll oh. check out the stream if that's... All right. Right. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Woo! <sighs> that's right. Triple R. I have been on the hunt to buy an old landline phone as a prop. Oh. Yeah, as a prop um, for my show in the Comedy Festival. But as a result of searching for them, it's kind of made it into my algorithm, all these different articles and TikToks that that's the next thing that Gen Zers have in their sites is the landline phone. Okay. They're bringing it back. Interesting. And they're not even plugging it in. It's just as a prop in a the background what? for oh. some of them, oh. I think. <laughs> They've seen it on television shows and thought, how quaint. It's like Indies in 2009 wearing glasses without lenses. Like it's just, oh, just for the aesthetic. Just to have it on the wall okay. in the background. Oh. I know. I think some of them maybe. I mean, you wouldn't even have a, um, a modem to plug it in. Most houses wouldn't have a modem even to plug in a phone these days. You'd have the... the well, you'd have it, but that's what it's the, you've plugged the modem in instead. Is that right? Yeah. You can plug it into the modem. The socket. You're not yeah, plugging into a modem. No, you're not plugging into it. You plug it into a phone line, but most people just wouldn't have a phone line. Yeah. I guess there'd be people listening who absolutely still use landlines. Do you have a landline, Daniel? No, I don't. I I have – no, I don't. I, if I got a bigger join, I'd definitely have one. Interesting. Mm. And there's a rotary phone that I still use if I'm at my parents. Really? Yeah. Do you remember, was it Star 61? Was that what you would dial on an yeah. old Telstra phone or telecom phone to see who the, what the miscall Star was? Star 10 hash. Star 10 oh, hash. Oh, Star 10 yeah. hash. I love that. God, it was so exciting. And we, or when we used to get our, I remember growing up our home phone, if um, someone had left a voicemail. Yes. This is after we had like the t- machine with the tape. When you could start leaving voicemails on phones directly, you'd pick it up and it would go like the, it would be an interrupted dial tone. Oh. It was so exciting because you knew you had a message and we'd all, all we'd want to find it and we got to listen to it. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. I remember finding call waiting really exciting when oh, yeah. we got that function as well, being able to navigate between two different calls. Mm. Hang on, I've just got another call. I'll put you on hold. I'll put you on hold. Oh, and patch you through together at conference call. Yes. Another thing that was huge, it was so, I remember it being such a big deal, but really inconsequential was adding the nine in front of phone numbers. It was like, whoa, from this date on, there's going to be an extra number. I do remember that happening, but I was very young. Okay. A long time ago, wasn't it? Yeah. It would have been in the nineties, late nineties, I'd guess. But I remember it being like, what is happening? This is wild. And I know there'd be an obvious answer to this, but I have often wondered how that made room for more phone numbers because then they all just started with nine. Mm. Like how did it help? Because all the phone numbers then just started with nine. You just added a number at the front. It didn't make way for new numbers. I think think it had to do with different states as well. Well, actually, no, I don't don't know. (laughs) It was supposed to just give different variations. But I think everybody still remembers their, their phone number. Yeah. You can never forget it. Yeah. Or phone numbers of friends' houses. <gasps> yeah. I, I was actually running through that in my head yesterday. I think I can only remember one friend's phone number. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Which I thought was impressive. That but is. But you sound no, like no, you've no, got I'm a fair few. Now. I have to sleep. 
I remember I had a few. <laughs> I was like, should I say them? No, because they could still be people's numbers. But... Yeah, I use it as a passcode for everything. So I oh, will not be. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's, I think I, it's, yeah, I still remember them. But it's one of those things that sits in your brain. Like I remember the number plates of friends, parents, cars. Mm. Like, wow, oh, there's OLQ431. OLQ God, a you budding know? spy. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Right. ACO. Like I don't remember yeah. anything uh, helpful. But uh, I do know that my friend Kate's mum's number plate was that in 1997. <laughs> yeah, okay. But you seemed quite confident that you still think a lot of people would have landlines. I think, I just think, yes. I'm. Well, we do here at Triple R. When you call us, it's a landline. Mm. But in terms of home phones, I just think there'd still be a lot of people who had one and then just never bothered to get rid of it. Yeah. Like my in-laws have a landline. Yes. And it still gets called because they have family in Germany. So they'll always call the landline. Okay. But that's like the only home I go to where that phone rings. My parents got rid of theirs a few years ago. And, yeah. Oh, I've, yeah, I mean, I would love to still have one. Picking up the receiver, hearing the dial tone, just the sound of someone hanging up, the kerfuffle, those little things that you don't realise you miss mm. with the mobile. 1831 in front of a number to private call and prank call your mates, apparently. Alex in Brunswick used to do that. Nice. 1831? Yeah, on a landline before you made a call. That's how you could prank call them. <laughs> um, so it's good. But now you can just go to your settings on your phone and select private. I don't like calling a landline and they know it's you. That's sad. I, I would rather mm. the surprise, like, hello, and th- then it's the big reveal. Yeah. Yes, because you didn't have call ID. Yeah, so oh. evidently there are phones out landlines with call ID that uh, yeah. blow my cover. No, you want that surprise. <laughs> but it's wild as well. You're trying to contact your friend and then you potentially had to navigate through your like the entire family of your friend to well, speak to them, leave personal details, messages. And you'd know your friend's parents and vice versa a lot more than I imagine happens now. Yeah. Because you'd have to call and say... Oh, is Sarah there? Hi, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, I'm well. How are you? Yeah, I'm sorry it's late. Yeah, if you could just get her to call me back, it is important. Mm. It's about a group assignment. <laughs> but really, you're organising to meet at Southland. I had, a, <laughs> I had a girlfriend in high school whose sister, they had pretty much identical voices, uh, which made it impossible. Mm. Like, yeah, I mean, you could call and get the dad, and that'd be the worst. Then you could call and get the mum, that'd be the second worst. And then the other, the other options pretty bad because you can't relax until you confirm the identity. And how do you confirm it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, my, I remember my mum my said that she, one of her sisters and she have a very similar voice and in the 70s when my mum and dad were dating, she, her sister used to play tricks and oh. pretend it was her and get him to say oh. all <gasps> kinds is, of stuff. That's incredibly <laughs> awkward. Oh, no. Yeah, so for some reason my mum thought that would be funny. I would, would hate that. Yeah. What about identifying yourself when you answer a landline? Yes. I used to say, I used to, my intro used to be so long that Let's hear certain it. friends of my parents would cut me off. <laughs> <laughs> yes, hi, Mon. <laughs> we get it, Mon. I would say, hello, Monique Sabir speaking. Who's speaking, please? Wow. <laughs> Monique Sabir, full yeah. name. So who's speaking, please? Oh, I throw it in the end. And I'd usually get to, hello, Monique Yes, hi, Mon. Hi. It's... it's Belinda, can you put your mum on the phone? I love that. Don't you want to know who I am and where I am? It's a prompt <laughs> call to action. Yeah. 11 years old wearing a headset. <laughs> I'll just patch you through right now. Yeah, can I take that message? <laughs> what was your pickup like, Daniel? Uh, yeah, I said my name as in Daniel speaking. Mm. But I wonder whether that's because no one does that anymore. Mm. 
whether that's giving too much away because it's a lot of their scanners. I say I'm an expert speaking if I don't know the number. Mm. On your mobile. On my mobile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, definitely. Um, I, I remember we moved our phone into an old cupboard, a big cupboard, like it was walking under the stairs and made like a, a makeshift phone booth that oh. we would sit in there, or my sisters would sit in there for hours, like, get out! I'm waiting on a call! <laughs> <laughs> like, who's in there? They had a little light. Like, no. I was like it. And taking messages as well. I remember once being caught out by one of my dad's friends for not writing down the message. Yeah. I was young and it was just like horrendous. He's I like, did that. And they go, you get a pen? And you go, yep. Yep. Oh, mm. And then just. Too then quick. They, yeah. And then they're like, they're like, you got a pen? You're like, yeah, yeah. Then you're like, no, I remember it. And you don't. I had that exact thing. And oh, what's that number? Fast. Oh, eight. don't. Um, so, yeah, I'll tell him. I'll tell him to call you. Oh. The notepad by the phone. Yeah, I know. Should have. Bring I mean, it back. Bring that back. If you can yeah. bring the landline back. I mean, we had so many landlines. They started to get into novelty territory. <laughs> I think there was a Garfield landline cool. with a receiver and his fat back. Oh, yeah. Or the burger. That was a popular one. Oh, the burger. The burger phone. I remember my friend had a, a, a Mickey Mouse phone. Mm. Oh, that, was, that was cool. The novelty phone. Um, someone as well on the text line has offered up an old landline if you need it oh, as a prop. Oh, wow. God. What are we talking? Because I'm looking for... Um... Uh, clunky handpiece and curly cord. Oh, it's all about the curly cord. That's yeah, perfect. You had it? me. The, curl, the curls get uh. the calls. <laughs> the curls get the calls. <laughs> I quickly found a stat. This is maybe old. According to a report from Australian Communications and Media Authority in 2022, 63% of Australians only had mobile phones yeah. and no landline. Okay, so it's still about close to half. Yeah, I'm su- yeah. Um, I would have thought it would be less had landlines. Payphones still exist. I saw someone using a payphone uh, on High Street in Northcote the other day and I was like, oh, God, I didn't know that payphone existed. Mm. Love it. But good to know. And I think a lot of them are free now. They are, yeah. yes. Right. I think it was a compromise by Telstra because they realised that they've got all this advertising space. Mm. It's basically free advertising, so yeah. do you get rid of it? Anyway, there was some uh, process by which, yeah, people are making free calls, but it's you always feel someone's in trouble or up to no good in it these yeah. days, no? mm. <laughs> which is all... unfair. Yeah. But it's the same thing with I don't, it's something that's private being very public. Mm. Oh, having it like a payphone? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You use it for the privacy, but you could not be more exposed. Mm. And there's always items I feel like, like food left behind and like bottles of drink. I always am like, what has happened in yeah. here? Like people are hosting little drink and dial parties in the booth. Uh, someone, no, we're talking about familiar sounding voices, someone on the text line said, my son and husband sound very much alike. And one morning a friend of my son's called um, and, but, <laughs> um, and my husband answered, but my son's friend thought it was the son and said, get up, you lazy C. <laughs> <laughs> And then he hung up, realising it's the wrong person on the end of the phone. Very risky. Need to work on their phone. Someone had a 10 metre curly cord in the early 2000s. That's long. How big's your house? That's basically a mobile. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Exactly. Take that down the street. It's a portable. So just an answer as well. Mate ran the extended landline numbers to eight digits program. 
So adding the nine made no difference. But once all the nines run out, you'll note some landlines now start with an eight. And if the eights have run out, they'll go to seven. And so it's a long-term extra number game. Oh, they're playing oh, the long wow. game. And then by the time we got to that, then we stopped using landlines anyway. Thanks for listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters, the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram or via the Triple R website. <laughs>